And so with this counterfactual curiosity, I think that we have a particular interest in our own choices and our own actions and their consequences. I think what's really fascinating about decision-making is that outcomes on their own aren't really that informative about whether your decision was a good one or not. You really need to know the context and you need to know what the alternatives were. Thanks for joining us today. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. If ever there were a time of what ifs, as we emerge from whatever form our pandemic experience has taken, we can't help but thinking, what if? Can't help but be thinking about how things might have unfolded differently, what alternative pasts, presents, or futures we might have this or that had gone down differently. And if we'd made X choice instead of Y, done A instead of B. I didn't know this until recently, but there's a name for that what if wondering. It's called counterfactual curiosity, our desire for information about what might have been. Proving once again, curiosity in one form or another seems to be at the center of just about everything. But it turns out that satisfying counterfactual curiosity, satisfying that desire to know about possible alternative outcomes, often makes us unhappy. So why have a burning desire for something that hurts? Songwriters and novelists pour themselves into trying to understand and articulate that very urge. So too, it seems, to some curiosity researchers. Lily Fitzgibbon was a postdoctoral research fellow in the School of Psychology and Clinical Language Sciences at the University of Reading in the UK when we sat down for this talk. Now a lecturer in psychology at the University of Stirling, she investigates cognitive, behavioral, and emotional responses to uncertain situations, including information seeking, decision making, and counterfactual thinking in children and adults. I came across her paper, The Lure of Counterfactual Curiosity, People Incur a Cost to Experience Regret, and knew there was a conversation to be had. So welcome, Lily. Hi, Lynn. Lovely to meet you. It's wonderful to have you here. And I I have to say, I confess that it was the subtitle of your paper, People Incur a Cost to Experience Regret, that really piqued my curiosity. So kudos for great titling. So I know what made me curious about counterfactual curiosity. What got you interested in counterfactual curiosity? Well, I think there are two things for me, really. One is that it's something that I really experience in myself. So, for example, every time I go on holiday, vacation, I find myself checking the weather for the alternative location that I might have booked or for back home, and particularly if the weather on my vacation is not great. Classic <laughs> Brit, always obsessed with the weather. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I just can't help myself but find out how it would have been if I was doing something else. I was also, at the time, researching children's regret. And to do that, we typically provide children with a choice, for example, between two wrapped gifts. 
and then they open the gift that they've chosen. They see that inside it, there are two candies. Great. But then we typically show them what's in the other gift and show them that actually they could have had 10 candies. And we find Uh that, yeah, but actually uh, very young children aren't too affected by that. It's only by the time they get to around six that they kind of recognize that this is something that they could have had and they feel bad about that. So we were looking at regret in children, and I was wondering whether, like me, children might be curious about what was in the box before we even show it to them. And so in some work that I did at the University of Southern California with Henry Kamol, we looked at just that. So we set children up with with a game in which they could make decisions and win glow-in-the-dark stars. But then after they made (laughs) each decision, they could use some x-ray glasses to kind of peek at the other cards. So it was a computer game and they could move the x-ray glasses around the screen to peek at the cards that they didn't choose. So we really wanted to know whether they were also curious about what might have been. And we found that actually before they experience regret, so when they're only four or five, children are curious about alternative choices. So you wrote somewhere that humans sometimes feel a compulsion to collect potentially negative information. And it sounds like that's actually developmental, that kids aren't necessarily intent on finding negative information, but adults (laughs) maybe are, even when we understand that it's maybe going to make us unhappy. That's really interesting. Yeah. So in our adult work, we really set things up to make sure that the information that adults would be getting would lead them to experience regret. So this time we used a gambling game in which you inflate a balloon and with each inflation, you get more points in the game. But at some point on each round, the balloon will burst and you don't know where that's going to happen. So it's a matter of managing your risk. And what we did was after they'd made their choice, We were interested to know whether they would then go on to seek information about how much further they could have gone. So they've already won, but we wanted to know whether they would seek information about how much more they could have won. And that information can really only lead them to experience regret because they can only find out that they could have won more. And so we set up this task. We gave them this option to experience regret. And then we kept pushing to see if we could break that. So they they wanted information. And then we thought, well, will they put in physical effort for the information? So we set it up so that they had to repeatedly press the space bar for 20 seconds, which is pretty effortful. Um, (laughs) And uh, and yes, people will still seek information when they have to put in physical effort. What about paying some money? So this time they had to actually pay some of their winnings from the game in order to get the information. Now, people sought information less when they had to pay for it with the money, but uh-huh. still uh-huh. they sought information. Bear in mind, this information is not at all useful for them. We then set up a version where they had a, a, a time cost. So they had to wait for the information and still they sought information. And in our final version, we set it up just to make absolute sure that they didn't think the information would be useful to them in future. 
we set it up so that there was only one round and again they had a time a time cost so they had to wait this time 30 seconds for the information about how much they could have won and still in fact even more so we found that 70 percent of people would wait for that information that then led them to feel bad so this is fascinating to me in your language this is motivational salience right that people are motivated simply to have information, even at some potentially considerable cost, financial, emotional, whatever. We have that desire for information. I wanted to ask you about this. You've written that people seek information not because they are curious, but because they believe that it has some instrumental utility. And that's an interesting question to me is, like, where's the definition of curiosity in this? Are people desiring information because they think it'll be useful in these cases? Or do they want information that wouldn't be useful? I mean, it's a made-up exercise. They're not going to do it again, but they still want the information. So talk to me about that. Yeah, so this is a really big challenge in curiosity research. So a lot of early definitions of curiosity have this kind of stipulation that the information must be absent of instrumental value. So it must be sought for its own sake. That's quite problematic because it's really difficult to get into somebody's head and find out why they're <laughs> seeking the information. Um, and particularly right. if you're if you're saying that they're, they're not seeking it for any reason, it's really challenging to actually kind of nail that down. So I think that some kind of more modern definitions of curiosity have kind of removed that. I still think it's quite useful, but but maybe not having it as a, as a totally kind of hard boundary, but uh-huh. just having it as a, you know, no perceived benefit, something like that. So certainly in this work, we, we try really hard to remove the kind of instrumental value of the information and have it just about seeking the information for itself. But even then, there could be value to, uh, for example, understanding how you respond emotionally to difficult situations. So it's very, very difficult to completely remove any instrumental value. So I think we can, we can simply think of it as seeking information where the value isn't kind of obvious it doesn't kind of get you to the next thing or get you money or get you (laughs) something that you need immediately it makes me think of your research with children who are in these constant states of experimentation which I think we would generally describe as curious they don't know what any information is going to have utility right they're just in exploration mode and I know you've looked at kids doing this sort of counterfactual exploration before they before they're really capable of counterfactual reasoning to know how to use what they're learning. So it seems to me that the purpose of counterfactual curiosity, if I can make so bold a statement, would be to sort of build our muscle for counterfactual reasoning. And and going back to something you said earlier about risk, to be able to make these sorts of risk-benefit analyses, which which seems like at the root of almost all every cognitive process you're you're nodding does that make sense yeah Yeah, absolutely so 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 what I think is going on is that we as humans don't always know when information is going to be useful to us but the the process of information seeking we we suggest that it's kind of like a reward learning process so we seek information we get some reward and then we kind of generalize from there so that 
situations where the information isn't obviously useful, but might be useful or kind of relates to other situations where it has been useful, or interesting or exciting in the past, then kind of become motivationally active so that we kind of expand what we're interested in, what we're curious about on the basis of what's kind of worked for us in the past. And so with this counterfactual curiosity, I think that we have a particular interest in our own choices and our own actions and their consequences. And that is incredibly adaptive because that is how we learn what the best actions to take in the future are. And so that I think we, we have a kind of heuristic over that where we don't necessarily think about whether we're going to come to this exact situation again in the future, but we still want the information about how it might have turned out otherwise, just in case. And yeah, so it's not that we're kind of deliberating about how we're going to use the information in the future. It's just that that we've got this mechanism that kind of pushes us to gather information where it's about our own choices. So what appeals to me about that particular interpretation is that we as a species, seem to not be able to resist learning about missed opportunities. And, you know, my my working definition for curiosity is that choosing to be curious is choosing to act on the belief that there's opportunity in the unknown. And this practice of collecting the information about alternative outcomes seems to me to just sort of feed the data machine. Huge portions of that data are, are not going to be useful but we don't know that at the outset. We're just collecting the stuff. It's interesting because you mentioned this in your writing. This kind of explains also our fear of missing out, right, of FOMO. You know, that this is a cognitive sort of value for future decision-making, that, that it's actually an expression of our desire to kind of figure out the future. Yeah, yeah. so I think what's really fascinating about decision-making is that outcomes – on their own aren't really that informative about whether your decision was a good one or not. You really need to know the context and you need to know what the alternatives were. So if I buy a lottery ticket and I won $5, that's great. But, or maybe it was a scratch card. The person with the next scratch card turned up and they got a million dollars. Then I think I might feel a bit differently about my own outcome that I was quite happy with in isolation. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Dr. Lily Fitzgibbon. We're exploring counterfactual curiosity, our deep-seated desire to know what if. So I think this this practice of seeking information about to get all the context around our decisions, although it can lead us to have negative emotions, so regret is a, a negative feeling, it can also be highly adaptive. Actually, there's some really lovely work showing that regret is kind of the most highly regarded emotion because it leads us to make adaptive decisions. So interesting. Yeah. So even though it feels bad at the time, actually, we 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 respect it because because it it leads us to kind of change our decisions and, and do better next time. Oh, that's really interesting. So and a lot of this, it seems to me, 
hinges around uncertainty and putting ourselves at risk for feeling bad as a way of maybe resolving uncertainty or just getting better at dealing with uncertainty or, or testing our emotional response to uncertainty. That a, a balloon simulation exercise or candies in a box is kind of a low-risk place to test our ability to deal with uncertainty or, or incorporate regret. I know you have a whole body of work around uncertainty that's gone beyond it's gone beyond counterfactual curiosity. So let me use this as a kind of opportunity to pivot to talk some about where you see uncertainty fitting into this curiosity picture. Yeah, so I find uncertainty so fascinating because it's the source of both curiosity. You need to have uncertainty in order to feel curious because you need there needs to be something to find out. But it's also the source of extreme anxiety. And we know that for a lot of individuals, almost any kind of uncertainty can lead them to feel extremely anxious. And so it can have a negative impact for well-being, but then that also can lead them to avoid those situations in which they might learn things that are interesting or, um, or fun for them. And mm -hmm. so I'm doing a few different pieces of work with children wanting to really understand these kind of affective responses to uncertainty. So I have a, a, an online study, which is online in response to uh, the pandemic, which has been quite interesting. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, so we, we've had children taking part in a study online. It's pretty much finished now. And in that study, they are uh, just on a web browser, um, but we're recording their faces while they're doing it. They're kind of in a spaceship in the study. We present them with a whole array of buttons that they can press. And those buttons make sounds. And some of those sounds are kind of okay. And some of them are a bit less pleasant. So we've got a siren sound. And I think we might even have a dentist drill sound in there. Um, so there are some quite unpleasant sounds. So this is actually based on some adult research where adults will seek information even if they know that there's unpleasant sounds when those buttons are unlabeled okay so if those buttons just have a question mark and it doesn't tell you whether it's going to be a neutral or a negative sound adults can't help themselves but press the buttons to find out what's what's behind it and if the if the buttons are labeled so it tells you if it's going to be a, a neutral or a negative sound then adults don't really engage so much so we thought we'd try that with children and also record their faces in anticipation so we show them these arrays of buttons with different levels of uncertainty to see whether we can see different facial expressions in response to high and low uncertainty so what we found so far is that children just really like pressing buttons. Um, so <laughs> irrespective of whether they're labeled or not, um, children tend to press the buttons a lot. In terms of the facial expressions, that is very much work in progress. Uh, yeah, so far we found that certainly the information seeking side of things is, uh, is really high in children. But I think that that works really interesting because what we're trying to do there is, is separate out the information seeking from the affective response. So mm -hmm. a, a kind of an anxious response might still lead you to seek, uh, to, to seek information because you want to reduce the uncertainty. So you might be seeking information just to reduce the uncertainty, but not to actually have the information itself. Whereas if you're feeling curious, then you're seeking information because you want the information. So it's a kind of positive response to the information or to the uncertainty, sorry. We think this is a really interesting way to start unpicking this kind of anxious, intolerant response to uncertainty and a, a curious response. 
Yeah, I have come to think of this in my own mind as the uncertainty paradox in curiosity. I'm very interested in how people are exploring the, the boundaries and the interplay of uncertainty in, in this way. And I think it's really fascinating. So, so where do you think this research goes next? I mean, what's the next frontier on these questions? Well, where I'm taking it at the moment is I'm going much bigger. One of the things that we've been looking at in our work is this idea of a positive feedback loop of information seeking. Mm. So that mm -hmm. when you engage in information seeking, that can generally feel pretty good, counterfactual information seeking aside. And that can lead you to kind of develop this, this positive feedback loop where you, you know, you seek some information, you kind of take that in, then you maybe come up with a new question because you've now kind of expanded your knowledge base a little bit more. And so that can lead you to feel more and more curious. You can kind of go down a bit of a wormhole with it. And so this idea of the positive feedback loop, we wonder if it can be used as a way to actually alleviate those kind of anxious responses to uncertainty. So that mm -hmm. if we provide kind of just the right level of uncertainty, and I'm talking about children here, then we can actually start to develop these positive, curious, exploratory responses to uncertain situations. And the way that we're looking at that in the project that I'm currently working on with Professor Helen Dodd is by looking at adventurous play. So this is play that involves some elements of risk and thrill and excitement that also involve a reasonable amount of uncertainty. So mm -hmm. climbing a tree, or kind of jumping from height, or running really fast, or biking around a pump track. These all involve some element of risk, but we believe that they also allow children to understand how to cope with uncertainty and how to cope with the kind of physiological things that happen to your body when you're feeling a bit uncertain because you know you might have a raise in heart rate or you might sort of feel a bit jumpy or you might be breathing a bit faster and if you don't have much experience with that then even those kind of bodily responses can feel quite scary in themselves and so by allowing children to engage in these kind of adventurous situations, we think that we might be training children to kind of deal with uncertain situations in general. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation we need to have about that because I'm thinking about the implications of a year of children being cooped up inside and not having the kinds of low-risk play opportunities. And I'm also thinking about kids who are in compromised circumstances of some sort, where the uncertainty around them comes from poverty or, or hunger or violence or any other kind of combination of things where curiosity is a luxury they can't really afford and, and the implications there. So I'm glad you're doing this because I think it's important in a lot of different kinds of directions to rest really kind of sort that out. I look forward to hearing where that goes and what you learn. Yeah, absolutely. And just in relation to that second point, I totally agree. And this is something that we've decided to target children in school. So we're, we're focused on school recess as a, as a time that children can kind of get these experiences. And hopefully we can then reach children from all sorts of different kind of family situations uh, mm -hmm. without putting any extra pressure on 
on parents or families um, mm -hmm. to facilitate mm -hmm. that because we know that it's really challenging for parents particularly parents in, in challenging circumstances to facilitate these kinds of play and yeah. increasingly parents are, are more and more concerned about protecting their children from risk and so yeah we're, we're kind of wanting to start with children in school and then hopefully eventually get to a point where we can have parents kind of understanding that engaging in small amounts of risk can have positive impacts mm -hmm. for their children as well. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. I'm so excited to learn more as your research progresses. But before I let you go, are you up for a little low risk play with me and my big jar of wannabe analogies? Okay. I'll give it a go. <laughs> All right. All right. That's the spirit. That's spirit. Okay. So I have this big jar. I'm going to take out three slips, one for you, one for me, one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. All right. Yours is button. How is curiosity like a button? Mine is Q-tips and I have one for the audience. So do you want to go or do you want me to go? Well, what I'm thinking of isn't totally appropriate so <laughs> no judgment <laughs> no judgment you're doing this on the spot you get full credit <laughs> okay I, I can give it a go <laughs> okay all right go ahead okay so curiosity is like a button because it's the way into something you mm -hmm. open the button and you see what's inside very nice that was great that was great Oh, we were just talking about kids loving buttons. Different kind of button, right? So mine is Q-tips. <laughs> I don't know. Um, do they have Q-tips in the UK? Call uh, them cotton buds. Okay. Okay. So cotton buds. Um, I like that. So curiosity is like a cotton bud because it's a way to gently probe um, and find things that are sometimes surprising and hidden. <laughs> I guess that's what I'll say about a Q-tip. And audience, yours is palm tree. How is curiosity like a palm tree? Let me know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, Lily, thank you so much for this. This has really been a delight, and I'm excited to see what you do with adventurous play. I've been thinking I need to do a show about play, so now you really sealed the deal for me. I'd love to be involved. <laughs> it's, uh, it's such a fun topic. But yeah, just like curiosity, it's, uh, it's challenging to pin down. <laughs> You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. You can find this and all my previous episodes on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on social media, choose to be curious. Don't forget to send us your palm tree analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Lily Fitzgibbon. Check out links to her research on my website. Thanks too to Sean Ballack for our theme and other music. Ever since I first read her paper, I've been noticing where and how counterfactual curiosity shows up in my days. I invite you to pay attention to how it shows up for you as well. What are the risks and benefits of exploring what if? I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. <laughs>